It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human at work. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or Die. Welcome back to episode 11 of the AI or Die podcast. It is 2024. We're back. It's been a while. So Reagan, Brendan, good to see you guys. Good to catch up. Um, as Ooh. usual, let's start with where we're at, what we're doing, you know, personal stuff, what's been happening in our lives since the last episode that we recorded. Me, I am in full home renovation mode in my basement. So I'm finishing my basement by myself. My dad comes over and helps, but we are working hard to get that all set up, create a little bedroom down there because the house that we're in is pretty small. So like finding every little inch that we can expand out to certainly helps. Um, that's been going on at home, at work, just cranking on getting these playbooks out to companies. So we can talk more about that in a little bit, but it's really exciting with the product development efforts that have been happening and just what we're able to get out into companies' hands. It's it's really cool. So that's what's new in my life. Um, Reagan, I'll throw it over to you. What's going on with you lately? How you been? Good. I took some time off after the holidays and for the new year. Every year, um, my fiance and I and our friends go diving. I probably mentioned this at some point, but we went to the Caribbean again, uh, which was great. Did a couple of islands, did did a lot of diving, saw a lot of cool stuff. Um, and yeah, had some nice, you know, vitamin D from the sun, warmed back up, came back to good old cold, gray, now wet Ohio. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was great. It was really good to take some time off, uh, really just kind of reflect on last year, which was really fun. I like to take a moment to do that. It was a crazy year. We have some fun updates to provide everybody. So we'll get into that, but, um, yeah, back into the thick of it. Yeah. So when you do these dives, are you looking for treasure? Is it just looking at fish? Is it just to go float around? Like how, what were you guys looking at on these dive trips? Yeah, uh, my fiance is always looking for treasure. So, um, but but I like to look in all the nooks and crannies for the little like for lobsters or for spotted eels or we saw a couple of sea snakes, uh, which to me are just disgusting. Cool. But it was kind of cool to see. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my friend spotted a stonefish. And stonefish are, uh, I think, the most poisonous fish um, in the ocean, and they're somewhat rare to come across. Um, they're super ugly, and um, and they just kind of lurk on the bottom. And so they have these like big spikes that come out of their back that eject this like blue venom, this like bright blue venom. If you step on it or if you like nice. hit it. Yeah. So they found one in a wreck dive that we did, which was crazy. And I didn't get to see it because I saw them looking at something. And, you know, like you and your friends are always like, oh, my gosh, look at this thing over here. Look at this thing over here. So I didn't think it was like a full blown stonefish, yeah. you know, yeah. or else I would have like jetted over there to see it. So when we came up, they're explaining what the fish looked like. And I was like, oh, my God, you saw a stonefish. <laughs> Not relaxing at all. Like I would have little panic attacks under there if we're running into stonefish and things like that too. But hey, everyone has their own thing. That's cool. Um, Brendan, how you doing? What's new with you? What's going on in your personal life? It's been good. I'm just living, hanging out in Barcelona, Spain. So it's been a lot of fun. I was just thinking as you were talking through that, like it's funny that I'm more afraid of like jellyfish than I am of sharks because there's like a lot of jellyfish that like come up in like the shallows here. So it's like obviously yeah. sharks are scarier, but you're always worried about like stepping on a jelly or getting a sting because it sounds super annoying. I should probably just get stung by one. So I'm like not afraid of it anymore, but some of those things are always like back of your mind. But 
Uh, I went down to Malta for the holidays. So I had a nice little trip on a Mediterranean island, hanging out, seeing like super old buildings and then uh, just absolutely beautiful coastlines and water and things like that. So it was a very nice, relaxing holiday. And now I'm just kind of back at it, <laughs> building out stuff for our clients on a lot of really cool projects right now. So it's just, it's great to see all this kind of the hype that you hear in the news really come into fruition with a lot of our clients and getting to work on really cool projects around Jet AI as well as scaling AI and just a lot more, uh, I think, kind of uh, excitement and interest in what we're doing these days. So it's been a lot of fun to work on a wide variety and a large like uh, significance of the projects that we're on right now. You know, it's funny, my mom still gets the newspaper. So she reads through like newspapers like the Columbus Dispatch here, Columbus Business First, Columbus CEO, like there's a few that come to her office and she's flipping through the Columbus Business First. Like I hadn't told her anything, but like she's flipping through it. Okay, top five startups to watch in 2024 in Columbus. Okay, flips page two, full two pages, Alana AI, Reagan on there. And she was like, Nick didn't tell me about this. I didn't realize it. So she texts me. She's like, hey, are, are you like, is this you guys? So I know it's antiquated, like print news, whatever, like everyone reads their news on the internet now, but I think it's just so neat to see one, us being recognized by Columbus Business First and two, like in an actual newspaper, it's like hearing your song on the radio, I compare it to or something like that. Like it's really neat. So yeah, to be recognized it's like that. It's going to be a big year. Awesome. So exciting. Yeah. 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 So that's cool. I remember when I was in college, I did a college radio station and that was even just like me as a DJ in college playing songs over an internet website. So I would get stoked and I'd be like, Kila, uh, my slot is literally like 11 to 12, 11 PM to 12 midnight. I will be playing my songs. Listen in. So like this, I feel like is my grown up version of that. Like, look, I'm in the paper, you know? So fun. Yeah. It's going to be a big year. I think last year I posted about this too, but last year I said was kind of like the, what can we do with AI? Like, even if companies were already working on AI initiatives internally prior to the Gen AI hype, we now have the attention, as we mentioned millions of times last year, of the board, of the C-level. And so they're starting to think about this more strategically and comprehensively and in an integrated fashion. And so last year was just a lot of reorientation, like what is this thing, you know, stakeholder education? If I'm not technical, how do I think about this? How do we incorporate this into our overall strategy? How do we think about funding these types of initiatives from a sustainability perspective? And this year, Nick, as you mentioned, like people are ready to go. They're ready to start putting the money into these initiatives. Um, there was a lot of experimentation last year. This year is the year is what I keep saying, the year of ROI, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where people start seeing things happen. They want to see results. They want to see success yeah. um, to justify more spend. And so we're going to get down into the nitty gritty of it this year, which is exciting. Yeah, like in learning about when we talk to customers about our product, the first thing is like, can you help me with a use case prioritization playbook? Can you help me with an AI readiness and safety playbook? Can you help me with like a COE playbook? Like that operational level of like, we are doing these use cases at scale and we need to get organized. So using Aligning AI in that way has been really cool. And I think we'll see more of that this year as well. So big ups to Brendan, all the work you've put in leading the product function and setting it up. We're in such a great spot. Yeah, it's very exciting times. And I actually had a good conversation yesterday and one of the his main points uh, was that really focusing on this top-down approach now, especially because like a lot of this has been bottom-up, grassroots, experimentation, R&D, figure it out. But now that there's this rare and unique opportunity to be in the limelight, have executives on the meetings, having the budget available, like 
now's the time to really hit it out of the park <laughs> because you never know if there's going to be another AI winter after this AI spring that we're in right now. We really need to be cognizant as folks that are stewards of this budget or you know taking this budget and turning it into tangible results that we are. So um, really showing those results, we can keep getting additional money to keep showing more value back to the business. So to your Reagan's, to Reagan's point, it's definitely the year of ROI. Can we really show the executive teams what we can do with this new technology and these new tools that are available? Yeah, it's so interesting, too, because I was also talking to a CDO last week and we were just kind of like brainstorming on messaging and what thing, what sorts of things will resonate and with who. And right now where the budget sit is not full chaos, but kind of chaos, like who's getting the money, who's getting funding for what. And when we think about what's getting funded, yes, like people care a lot. There's been a lot of conversations about regulation, governance and all of that stuff. And like, we want to continue to put some money towards that. But I think where people's heads are at mostly is this value generation side, which are like really two different sides of the same coin somewhat, right? If we can track and understand how these systems are impacting decisions, we can both measure value and measure and govern what's happening. So we want to prevent bad things from happening. So bad decisions from being made, especially at scale. But we also want to make sure that there's value associated with that. So it's kind of a tricky thing to say like, hey, both like ROI and adoption and governance. It's like these two kind of pulling things against each other that are both needed, but it's just what's going to get the budget this year. And usage-wise, Copilot is also going to be a big approach that companies take. We're already seeing it where, again, getting Gen AI into the people's hands through Microsoft Office tools and Copilot is, is just another thing that I think is another thing to consider and something that a lot of companies are using as a first step to operationally get AI into a mass amount of employees' hands. And then naturally, starting with Copilot, naturally it'll get into more and more complex use cases of like, okay, if we can do that with Copilot, what else can we do with other tools that are available in the market? Or what can we build internally with a foundational model to get ourselves set up and help ourselves operationally? Yeah, Copilot is like this interesting, like, um, you know, tinder for the fire, if you will. Like for a long time, it's been like, you must invest so much money to see value from AI. And I think what companies are doing strategically is they're introducing these AI solutions or co-pilots as really kind of a change management thing. Like, see, it's not so scary. Like you can use it for all of these things and it can be very helpful for you. And here's what it is and here's how it works. And it gets everyone kind of excited and you know, makes them feel like they're a part of it. So even if they do want to create these like big custom models internally or solutions internally, they have a lower investment option to at least demonstrate it at a very low level. And I think that's super important. You have to run the big strategic plays, but you have to try to off risks or offset some of that risk with things that are a lower starting investment. Yeah, and so that's definitely the big trends I'm seeing is like there's the mass adoption approaches that a lot of companies are taking. So like getting Copilot out there or setting the policies, getting everybody on the same page, like what can go into ChatGPT, what can't. And then at the same time, there's even kind of a more intricate approach, like we mentioned the strategic projects of building out this muscle or these uh, abilities inside of the company to take foundational models and then fine tune them or you know teach them how to perform the very unique jobs that we do as far as like how our company generates value and makes money for, as a business. So I think it's gonna be really interesting to see kind of how those two approaches, you know, 
intersect with each other, but also really drive the overall value that AI provides in the enterprise. Because I think it'll be really interesting to see as this goes forward, which ones end up generating the most value and which ones are the highest priority for a lot of companies. Because like you mentioned, it's a low barrier of entry now, but will a lot of the big value drivers be in those more intricate foundational models being fine-tuned for specific problems? Yeah, that's the constant, right? Whether you buy or build an AI solution, how are we actually getting value out of it? Is it just going to be inherent that we all like it and we want to keep it? Like there's got to be some sort of attribution of we bought this thing or we built this thing and here's the value that we're seeing from an OpEx standpoint. I think it'll be a big year of like AI and OpEx coming together. Yeah, at the conference that we were at, uh, Brendan in New York in November, we I heard a really good phrase and maybe it's popular and I just wasn't aware of it, but it was like, you know, buy for acceleration, build for differentiation. And so lots of people are having these discussions about do we buy, do we build? And so when we think about accelerating initiatives that might not be differentiating as a company, you know, um, those are really good opportunities to buy and see what's on the market. And it's maybe a little bit more generic, but we'll do the job. And, and then we've got these differentiating elements, which I think is like a really interesting, almost like fundamental question for some of these companies. Where are we differentiated in the market? I think that you got to answer that question first, and then you can start exploring some of the use cases where you can leverage AI to, to address those areas um, to really push additional differentiation. And so I think a lot of people will come back to the fact that it has to do with data <laughs> And, yeah. you know, we'll see a lot more investments. I don't know when that shoe will drop, but I'm, I'm anticipating that it will next year. If some people in like 2025, if some people start to see the power of it and start to understand, ah, okay, here are the areas that we need to invest truly. And they understand that that's data related, which it is, you know, when will we see the second wave of data infrastructure investment start to happen. And I kind of, I'm guessing it's going to be in 2025. I'm already hearing discussions like that. Oh, go ahead, B, and then I'll come in. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's interesting there too, like the types of value are very different, right? Because it's like a lower risk, time savings, productivity saves. We've seen a lot of those use cases initially, but people are already starting to investigate. And I think this is where Nick's going as well. Like these big high differentiation ones have such a different, way to define and track value because they are so unique to like how our business operates today. So when we model the question of like, you know, how much value does AI provide our company? I think there's going to be two very different <laughs> kind of answers to that. And one of them will be more, you know, times, how much hours per, you know, or how, what's our cost per hour and how many hours does this AI save us? And the other one will be much harder to model around additional customers that we acquire, market share that we gain, you know, user experience that is much superior to our competitors. Like, I think that's going to be such an interesting and unique problem when it comes to AI. Yeah, I was just going to say, we're <clears throat> hearing those differentiation discussions at the use case level. So in the data scientists we're working with, as we're prioritizing what use cases that the data scientists build internally versus what's bought externally, the data scientists are talking a lot about what is the mode we build? What is our differentiator to build this internally where a bot solution couldn't just come in and replace it in the future? That's where inherently a lot of the text generation use cases, a lot of the image generation use cases. Let's wait for Copilot to get rolled out in the mass organization. But for the internal ones, like what are the ones where the information inside of the documents we're referencing is just too confidential in that way? Or there's some sort of differentiator where it's worth it for us as an internal data scientist team to build it because we know a bot solution still won't be able to come in, even if technically it is feasible. Yeah, yeah it's so wild too because the 
goal, the goalpost keeps moving, right? Like you, the second you think something is differentiating, you wait three months and you see that it's not. (laughs) So like, I think people are a little concerned about that too. Like, do we just wait for one of the big players to incorporate this into their suite or do we go after that problem? And there, there needs to be a pretty comprehensive way of evaluating risk around that. Brandon, you're talking about AI winter versus AI spring. We're getting into the news because you know we we like to do a chunk of news before we have our guests join. Um, old news because it's been a couple months is the OpenAI board drama. I thought, frankly, we might see a bit of an AI winter with all of the Sam Altman kind of board kicking them out in the November December timeframe. It didn't end up being as significant as I'd expected in terms of the progress of OpenAI and ChatGPT. That's my outsider's perspective, though. Like, what was your guys' read on all that news coming out, and then just what's happened in the past few months since then? Yes, I'm not going to attempt to guess the inner workings of the board at OpenAI, as many people have done. But I did read a good write-up. It was in the New York Times, so it had you know a little bit more of a narrative around it. But it was basically like control versus commercialization was like the friction that led to the board fallout, and it traced the roots all the way back to like the founding of OpenAI. And that was the idea was that OpenAI was going to be a heavy control approach and then do commercialization. And then now they're feeling some tension around that. So I'll just say that that I think is a really interest interesting macro trend right now is like how much do we control this versus how much do we wild wild west commercialize what's going on with ai and all the fear and all the opportunity that are kind of counterbalanced in that trade-off from that decision i think it was really interesting as like a microcosm of that macro movement and then obviously there's more tangible repercussions but i agree it it feels like it was a big a big news story for that couple of days two weeks or whatever that was and then now the reality is still open ai is trudging forward their partnership with azure is becoming really beneficial to a lot of the enterprises that we work with. So I think uh, it's interesting to, from a theoretical perspective, and then practically it doesn't feel like it's changed too much of how they're moving. Uh, but I am so really curious to hear if that, or curious to see if that will affect the overall like control narrative that, that competitors like Anthropic have, um, and if that changes their positioning in the longer term. Yeah, I, I think what it did was it highlighted a few things for folks to think through. To, to your point, like, obviously, we didn't see anything too tangible happen as a result, but it did expose a lot of cards uh, in the process, right? Like, it exposed Microsoft's position and partnership with OpenAI a little bit more deeply um, and got people more aware of that. It actually exposed the underlying structure of OpenAI to more people because once that news story broke, people were investigating how it was originally set up. And that became more popularized. And so people started talking about that. I think it hyper focused on this idea of closed versus open source. Um, So, you know, a lot of attention around hugging face and the open source community of these foundation models. So I think it actually did some good in a sense. Like, obviously, we don't want to see that much instability in an organization like OpenAI, where so many people have made really strong bets on that organization Uh, But I do think it was a good thing in the sense that it brought to light a lot of really critical conversations that even though it didn't come crashing down, like we can think about that a little bit more deeply as a community uh, moving forward and how we want to like position, you know, certain certain ideas in, in the market. And so I think. That was really interesting. So obviously the drama was fun to, to follow, um, but I do think that some good came out of that, even if nothing significant truly happened. 
And I just find it interesting too how, yes, everyone talks about AI being such a transformational part of humanity, but still it seems like three companies have kind of a stranglehold on the entire progress of AI, OpenAI, Microsoft, and a few other ones in there. So if big news happens at OpenAI, it seems like people are expanding that out to, oh, this is going to impact AI progress overall, which is super interesting. Yeah, I think we're also starting to get past this like generalized, like OpenAI is going to solve all the problems. Yeah. For example... Yeah. You know, like HeyGen is starting to make a name for itself on video generation, and we've we've seen um, was it Eleven well, Labs? Eleven Labs. They just hit unicorn yeah. status because they're really working on text to speech, and and I think that's right. going to be a big thing here too. Because the more they work on text to speech, I think especially being an election year, we're going to see so many more news stories coming out just around text to speech related to trying to convince voters to do things specifically on either side. Like no, no matter your like political standing, just the amount of Gen AI content that's going to come out around this being an election year as we get closer to November, I think there's going to be a lot of misinformation out there due to it. Yeah, I was going to say, I just saw either yesterday or today, there was an article about Joe Biden robocalls that were already yes. happening. So like our, what you're saying is already like a thing that's right. occurring right now. <laughs> Already. And I think it's going to go both ways where it's, yeah, it's, it's trying to convince people that the president is telling them something or even like at the state level, like your state senator, your state congressman giving personalized information, like talking to you, convincing you to do a thing as a voter in that way too. Like there's going to be a lot of, I think, Gen AI content coming out around election and getting voters to take a specific action for sure. Yeah. I think one really promising thing I was reading through kind of the 11 labs uh, story and they were really, really adamant about being able to help people identify that it was AI related content. So I think what we'll start to see is a more normalized like exposure and transparency that something is AI generated. And that'll create some normalcy around trying to identify which things are AI generated and which aren't. And so um, I think it's going to be helpful from a trust perspective if people are producing that because at least you'll have a mental model that if you don't see that it's up for question you know well yeah speaking of like acknowledging it brennan you shared that article around the japanese literary award like the author confirmed yeah i helped write their book like again more of that coming out yeah i'm really curious to see what happens with this one i i like doing creative writing that was like my COVID habit when everybody else was like making sourdough bread i started doing some writing and stuff and i think um I'm really curious to see because we saw like the writer strike and how TV thinks about AI powered writing. I'm really curious to see what other creative domains. So I know visual artists have been very concerned about like how that will affect their part of the world. So I'm curious how the literary world and uh, you know like the novel industry will respond to this. But she said that five percent of it at least was word for word generated by AI, which I think is like very interesting to come out transparently about. It seems like she came out after the fact and said that that was the case. So I'm curious if they would have not awarded her if she would have been upfront about that. Just in general, how like this industry is going to react to that news. Yeah, it seems like the guilt might have gotten to her a bit. And I, my camp is always, if you use it, go for it as long as you acknowledge it. And maybe that'll up the value of hand-painted things versus computer-generated ones. I think there's still going to be markets for both, but like recognizing and calling it out without shame is, I think, a big cultural thing that a lot of people are going to need to get over. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they always say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if something speaks to you, whether or not it was generated by a person, like you can still like that thing. But I think to your point, Nick, as long as you're transparent about it, 
you may have a deeper appreciation if it was generated by a human. Um, and, you know, that that's just kind of how it's going to be. Hopefully people are transparent about it and, and you know, there aren't false valuations on things because it was AI generated versus not. But I do think that there's going to be a couple of camps on how how art or how text is going to be perceived. It's so interesting in art because art is so unrigid in a way, right? It's so open and like creative. So it's like, it's just a new medium to play with, a new thing to use to express whatever you're trying to express. So I'm no artist, but I think it's just going to be really interesting to see that interaction between art and AI going forward. Well, yeah, total applications and things like fast fashion, but then there's still a premium value set on handmade cars. So I think it'll just up the value of those truly handmade works of art at the end of the day, while others are leaning into the generative lane, which is fine, but just because it's easier for anybody to jump in and work with the generative art too. Excited to see where that goes. Today, we have Cal Aldubabe joining us for episode 11. Cal, thank you so much for joining. Good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, good morning. Greetings from LA. Uh, the sun is finally coming out, so uh, I'm excited. Nice. So I pulled this from your LinkedIn, but please feel free to add to this intro. So as a founder of Pandata, Cal leads a team of data scientists and experts who help organizations solve and simplify complex business challenges with AI-powered solutions. They focus on particularly high-risk environments like healthcare, financial services, and defense, where the stakes are particularly high and additional steps are necessary to mitigate risks. Any other information, Cal, you'd like to share with the audience just around who you are or what you're working on in Pandata? Just that my team and I are gluttons for punishment. Uh, so we, we love building AI solutions where you've got all of these restrictions and um, you're kind of forced by default to build for trust. And that was the, the genesis of a lot of my professional interests. And you've been, frankly, a friend of Align AI in the show for a while now. How did you first get connected to Align AI? Did you meet Reagan somewhere? Like, how did we sort of initially link up? That Best is story. like the funniest story. <laughs> so we had both been hearing about each other in our businesses for some time. I'm like, wow, this Reagan person, I really need to meet her. And we're both at ODSC West uh, almost a year and a half, maybe two years ago now. And um, I'm chatting to this person next to me at breakfast. And I'm like, what do you do? And she's like, oh, we do policies and procedures. And, you know, she gave me the Align AI pitch. And I'm like, I, I've heard of you guys. And she goes, no way. And we found out, we introduced each other, basically, after everyone telling us we needed to meet. And we've been great friends ever since. That's cool. That's cool. And and I know you're working on a lot of interesting stuff at Pandata. Is there anything you can share just around what you're working on list it lately? Like anything that you can share with the team of projects or just like problems that you're looking to solve at a high level this year? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of what I call uh, boring AI. So it's the problems that when they work, nobody even bothers to think about the AI or the tech behind the scenes. And there's a lot of these little problems to solve. Um, one of the, the partnerships that I'm most excited about is our work with uh, university hospitals. And their, their ventures team is um, investing a lot in a holistic and also thoughtful approach to using AI and in everything from managing patient scheduling to things like predicting readmissions. And whenever we talk about designing and building AI solutions in these situations, um, we have to think about how do we uh, enable clinicians to trust it? How do we make sure that there's traceability and auditability? 
Um, by definition, AI uh, generates uh, different results statistically. And so you've got to reconcile its default nature with the need to be predictable and auditable. Um, so those are the types of problems um, I'm really excited um, that we've been solving for some time. Uh, but as AI has gotten more mainstream, um, it's paved the way to really focus on these boring problems while generative is still starting to unfold. I feel like you say boring, but like AI and healthcare is a particularly interesting because it's solving healthcare problems. And I imagine, well, I've seen like the, the cultural change in healthcare specifically as an industry is a bigger uphill battle than a lot of other industries in terms of getting clinicians to adopt AI outputs and actually leverage it in their day to day. It's not just the technological feasibility, but also just the cultural change management aspect that you got to stay ahead of on a lot of these healthcare projects. Well, I think like most industries, and, and I'm, I'm sure you're all experiencing this also, but there's this existential crisis. Um, I even face it um, when I'm thinking about what the future of data science looks like. And um, there's this reconciliation. Let's say you're a radiologist where there's now a lot of now solved computer vision problems. And it's like, well, what does it mean to be a radiologist today yeah. in five years and 10 years from now? Yeah. Yeah, especially with Copilot, Reagan and I talked to a lot of companies about flipping from being more of the creator, writing a paper or like generating a presentation to more of a reviewer at the end of the day. And I, I, I think a lot of that same applies to the radiologists as well is having that new relationship with AI where it's providing you those insights and just yeah. still having that critical thinking aspect of your job, but just working with different formats of information at the end of the day when you are engaging with a patient. For sure. I'm I'm really excited to start to see some best practices start to evolve. And, and now that we've had some time to like sit with this, um, trying to, to, to see a little bit more uh, standardization of like, all right, what problems are human? What problems are AI? What problems are we going to stop trying to say, okay, let's, let's do this manually. Um, and I'm curious to see those attitudes start to proliferate. So I, I'd love to double click on that a little bit, because when we hear the industry talking a lot about regulations, uh, especially with the EU AI Act and obviously the executive order, they're spending a lot of time prohibiting high risk uses of AI. So yeah. I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, given the fact that you have such a deep um, expertise in the high risk area, where do you feel like we have room to improve in our general yeah. perspective of this problem? Um, and what do you think people are getting right? So one of my, my favorite things about speaking at as many conferences as I do and attending is I get to meet a lot of really cool people. So um, yesterday I, I met up with um, Dominique Shelton uh, Leipzig, who, um, whose book is being published by Forbes on trust and AI. And she analyzed 90 different regulatory um, actions, proposals, bills across um, many countries and found that most of them agree on most of the things. And it's this risk assessment of AI use cases. So you have the things that we're going to ban, we're not going to do. Things like using facial recognition for social scoring or policing or in autonomous weaponry. So that's like restricted we're going to treat that the way we treat nuclear arms, and there's going to be um, international treaties about how that's safeguarded. Then there's high risk. And generally, high risk pertains to AI applications that um, impact the human condition. So financial well-being, 
health and safety, physical safety, um, emotional well-being, for example. And these are situations or applications that if an error is made, um, you could have disproportionate impact amongst different groups. Um, and then there's minimal risk where you have things like a chatbot that could share disinformation, for example, or could appear like a, a human-based entity and there's a need for disclosure and then there's no risk. Um, and it's this, this high-risk thing that's really interesting. And a lot of companies are scrambling to say, oh, no, no, our applications, they're not high-risk because... Um, so it's a lot of, it's interesting to see the dialogue unfold and how companies are either preparing or thinking or planning about applications that fall into that sector. Um, but generally, um, a, a couple of, of best practices that I'm seeing um, evolve and emerge while standards are still being set is the, the notion of red teaming models. Um, it's generally best practice now that if you're deploying a generative model, um, that you're going to now stress test it um, the way you'd stress test like a cyber system. You're going to have a bunch of, of um, hackers try and break it in a lot of different ways. It can be quite fun, can be quite interesting. Uh, but it's interesting to see that emerge as like a new best practice and standard. It's so interesting you say that too, because I remember back in the day, this was like, I don't know, six years ago, <laughs> Brendan. I, know, I always feel working. so funny saying back in the day, like <laughs> even no, last year. <laughs> so, right. Last year, way back in the day, um, Brendan and I would work with these banks on deploying, you know, machine learning models into production systems. <clears throat> and we would often work with security, right? That was like our number one meeting was go meet with the security yep. team and talk about what you're trying to do because open source for them was a big deal. Like, as a bank, oh, yeah. you're importing all of these open source libraries into your production system. So, you know, we were using at the time, like Docker and Docker images to create environments for models to deploy them uh, more seamlessly. And so there was this pretty rigorous process of bringing in an environment in which the model was dependent on and having the security team bless or approve that and basically sure. go through all the security protocols of assessing the different versions of the different packages in open source. And I know that's a small example, but like, yeah. what if we extrapolated that out into these foundation models into some of these other core components sure. that we're bringing into the ecosystem? And to your point, what does that look like? Because it's not just code vulnerabilities at this point. Now we also have to stress test how these models were trained. And oh, absolutely. also have, you know, so there's all of these other components now that we need to look at. Um, and we talk a lot about all the complexities around security with generative AI models uh, in general. But like, I think what you're saying yeah. is such a really interesting point. Um, so I'm curious beyond, so, yeah, I'd love for you to add to that. And then I have one follow-up question for that as sure, well. Sure, so yeah. um, beyond that, what are some of the other types of guardrails that you're seeing people put in place? So there's a security piece of like bringing in these models to make sure that they're safe and yeah. we can use them, but then that's not where it ends. You know, there's more, there's more components we need to think about. So there's, there's three points of vulnerability um, for machine learning models um, that are, are important to stress test along the way. The first is actually at the training level, at the data level. And there's a lot of really interesting papers about like data poisoning or examples of models that can uh, learn bad behavior um, 
Uh, there's the, the the classical example of, is it a muffin or chihuahua? Uh, but the yeah, more serious sure. example of, you can actually add a couple lines to a stop sign that fool a uh, standard computer vision system to think it's a green light. Um, so there's stuff that can happen at the training data level that's either inserted or missing or underrepresented that results in weirdness of behavior of the model. And it can have a variety of consequences. Um, you know, at best, it makes silly mistakes. Um, at worst, it could start doing things like uh, disproportionately discriminate or not function amongst a certain group of individuals. Um, the second thing is actually once we've trained a model, once we've gone through that process, we're happy, we've got safeguards in place, we feel like our data set's representative, now we're moving it to production, and there's two more points that we want to consider. Um, there's the inputs to the model, and then there's the model um, responding in inappropriate ways, especially when we talk about generative models. Um, so the first is um, you're actually screening what users are inputting to models. Um, and you can, for example, um, there's, there's a lot of examples about what this is. Um, it's called uh, prompt poisoning. Um, so you put together a bunch of stars and asterisks and whatnot, and all of a sudden these generative language models start re responding in very weird ways. Um, and in fact, you could do things like there's, um, what's the, have you guys seen the app by Lake Hera, uh, where you hack Gandalf and you try to yes. get the language model to reveal the password? Um, I, I love sharing that. It's a great hands-on way to experience what that looks like. Um, and then the last part is the model itself and screening and detecting. Is this model doing something that it shouldn't? Um, is there some weirdness here? Is there toxicity here? Um, if you're producing something in a critical application, um, how do you ground, like, uh, fact check or measure it against ground truth to make sure that it's factual? Being the top of the year, a lot of folks are yeah. reflecting on 2023 and looking ahead to 2024. Help me finish this sentence. So 2023 was the year of blank and 2024 will be the year of blank. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I love that question because I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I'm, I'm convinced 2023, that was the year of the pilot. 2024 for me is the year of execution. Um, and just an interesting anecdote, talking to, to decision makers and enterprises about who's funding this. Last year, a lot of the AI initiatives, specifically generative AI initiatives, got funded by um, innovation budgets, flush yeah. yeah. money. This next year, we're going to have to see um, investments being cut from operational budgets if these pilots are to continue. And there's certain things that we're going to see stick, like code generation, um, content creation, marketing. Um, and then there's other things where there's almost this wonder now still of like, ooh, could AI do this and could AI do that? There's some problems there too, but I think that's going to start slowing down. Totally 100%. agree. 100%. I, last year was so interesting because it was like the art of the possible. We were trying yeah. to help people understand what can you do. And so the ideas, maybe not all of them were great, but there were lots of ideas thrown out there. And we kept saying, or we kept hearing like no bad ideas, more ideas. And so we would get these lists of like, hundreds and hundreds of use cases that were so interesting where you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. how do you even evaluate these? And the way that companies are doing that today 
is Excel sheets. Like they're literally running these hackathons of like, let's go talk to different parts of the business. Let's go see if they've got ideas. Let's go put this in an Excel sheet. Let's guess about the risk and the feasibility and the potential value. Are you seeing more of a strict methodology around that now? Or do you anticipate there being a stricter methodology around that for this year? So I, I think with a lot of the, um, the use cases or could AI be used to solve X, um, there's often a, a missing element in terms of emphasizing the decisions that'll be influenced. So let's just make it specific. AI for readmissions, really standard, really basic. There's no gen AI in this. Um, we're predicting which patients are likely to come back within 30 days. Now of that, there's a subset of patients that would come back no matter what, no matter what you do, they're going to be back. They're very sick. Um, they're hospice patients and their cost is going to be what their cost is going to be. Um, there's going to be a subset where, um, it's unclear what intervention is needed from just the prediction alone. And then there's going to be a subset where it's like, okay, these are the 20 or so patients that if you did something proactively today, they won't come back in. Um, however, that requires decision-making, that requires an influence and somebody willing to take action. So a lot of these use cases are very optimistic in terms of the value um, that they're promising and don't have that decision-making calculus as part of them. Um, so I'm, I'm really um, excited to see more sophistication um, in thinking at enterprises about how they're measuring the success or potential success of these use cases. Yeah, we talked earlier on the episode it being much more of an OPEX kind of focus now on these use cases as opposed to an innovation focus. With that, there comes the security scrutiny, as you just discussed with the guardrails, but then also the financial scrutiny of how do we justify the investment, whether we built it internally or we bought it via co-pilot? Like, how do we start to recognize, yes, it feels like it's helping us operationally, but what's the payoff? Like, is there a budget impact that we can plan for in 2025 at the end of the day? Big conversation right now that we're seeing, especially. Yeah, and I'm curious to see here if you've seen this trend as well, but it seems like the big high value use cases, there's often a higher risk associated, whether that's more sensitive data or more proprietary, yeah. especially in the financial ends that we work in. I'm curious if you've seen that in healthcare as well, if that's kind of universally a problem. <laughs> so I, I have this complexity matrix that I like to use. And if you think of like one axis as complexity of your data, um, you've got spreadsheets, documents, images, video. Uh, in greater scale, and then going, you know, on the other axis, you've got the complexity of your goal. Um, mm -hmm. So your goal is counting, um, predicting, a uh, little bit more complex is selecting a recommendation, and then finally generating new patterns. And what happens is the more complex your data is, um, the harder it is to query. I can write a simple SQL statement to query a spreadsheet or a database. Um, it gets harder with images, um, and then the more complex your goal is, which correlates somewhat to value, um, the harder it is to define correct. If we're bean counting, we can all point back at the same number and say, hey, you know what, we've audited it. It is exactly this number. There are this many patients. If we're summarizing this conversation, uh, we're all going to have different answers. Some might be more or less correct. Um, and it's very subjective. So the harder it is to query your data, the harder it is to define what correct is the more risk 
that's introduced and the more you need to lean on methods like stress testing. Um, and that naturally correlates with those high value use cases. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty with these um, harder to solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. And the path to value realization might be uncharted. They might have never done a value realization for a use case of a similar type too. So it's a lot of new definition as a group, you know? So this has all been fantastic, Kyle. We, I can't believe we're already at time. Thank you just so much for your time today. If, if folks want to get in contact with you or reach out to Pandata, if they're interested in working with you guys, what's the best way to get in contact? Um, great question. I um, hang out a lot on LinkedIn. I like to um, share my conference travels, little insights and tidbits, um, and I'm easiest to reach that way. And we, we'd be thrilled to, to hear from folks who want to talk about AI design and risk management. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, to start my morning with you all. Yeah, of course. We'll put your LinkedIn in the description as well as Pandata's website. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you for being a longtime friend of the show and just joining us for episode 11. Um, listeners out there, if you want to listen to more of our episodes, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe or die on Spotify and Apple Podcasts along with go to our website where we have the full catalog of all of the other episodes we've recorded too. Thanks everybody for hopping on. This was episode 11. Thank you, Cal. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Reagan. We will see everybody on the next one.